WAGP, Beaufort, Hilton Head, Savannah, a ministry of Community Bible Church. On the web at WAGP.net. This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally, or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. I welcome you this hour to the Bible line. We're so glad to be here on this beautiful day in November. And if you have particular questions or issues that you are looking for biblical counsel on, if we can help by God's grace, we'll do the best we can. All you need to do is pick up the phone. Again, the local 843 exchange. You can reach us anywhere in the country. From this number is 525-1859, 843-525-1859. We do have a toll-free number. It's 877, the call letters WAGP980, if that's easier for you to remember. Or you can email us directly into the studio, and the email address is TBL for the Bible line, TBL at WAGP.net. We do give preference to live callers, and so if you want to go on the air live, you're welcome to. Uh, If you have a question that you want to ask and you simply want to dictate it to the person answering the phone, we're happy to receive it that way as well. Well, we get more questions typically than we can answer, but we'll do our best to begin today. Walter, let's go ahead and get started. All right, Pastor Carl, good morning. Our first question comes from Randy out of Texas, um, and he writes, what would you say if someone said that Jesus was a Palestinian? I would say that he definitely was not. And the term Palestinian is a term that I think is very confusing. Uh, When you look at its etymology, its history, just remember that when Jesus walked on the earth, we're told in Matthew's account, when Joseph um, was met by an angel of the Lord after he had been away in Egypt, that it was okay to go back into the land of Israel. So God referred to the property as the land of Israel, and that's what it was really called in Jesus's day. I flip here to the back of my Bible, and there are some maps here, and it's it says Old Testament, uh, you know, uh, the Old Testament in uh, in Moses's day, and there's just different maps of one sort. And in one map, says Map Five says Palestine in the time of Christ. You know, I don't really like that. Now, I understand why they are using that term, and most English Bibles, you know, have that, but it wasn't called Palestine in the time of Christ. It was called Israel. It would be better and more accurate biblically to write Israel in the time of Christ. So remember, as Jesus predicted in 70 AD, um, the Romans came down, they began to disperse the Jews, Uh, they greatly restricted them. Uh, around 132, there was a guy named Bar Kopka. We call it uh, the Bar Kopka re- Revolt. Simon Bar Kopka. Bar means son of in Hebrew. So Simon, the son of Kopka, uh, led a rebellion in 132 AD, and he was successful for about three years. It drove the Romans crazy. 
ultimately around 135, it was uh, clean up operations in 136. They wiped out all the Jews that were left. They renamed the capital of Jerusalem to Elia Capitolonia. Uh, in, in mockery to the Jews, they renamed Israel. They took uh, this word Palestinia, the Latin word, which is a derivative of the word Philistia or Philistines, which were some of their worst enemies, and they called the place Palestine, as we have it in modern English. And so Palestine, with this new capital, Elia Capitolia, uh, was a place where the Jewish people were basically mocked. Uh, They were at that point spread across the world. And of course, Moses prophesied this. Jesus spoke of it. And it spoke to a region. Um, And so even in the 20th century, through the rebirth of Israel, uh, the the Palestinians were Jewish people and Muslim people and Arab people. It was a regional term describing a landmass, and the Brits continued to call it that. Uh, much like uh, we live in a section of the country, the southern tier of the United States, and we're called Southerners. So this region and not the people was known as Palestine, and it applied to anyone and everyone who lived in that geographical uh, region. Uh, So there's no such people who are Palestinian any more than there's a, a nationality of people or an ethnicity of people called Southerners. And by the way, I do a program once a month, occasionally twice a month, called Stand in the Gap Radio. And if you go to searchthescriptures.org, I kind of walk through this issue in some detail. But when Yasser Arafat came on the scene, uh, he wanted to kind of change the meaning of the term. And I think his motivation as much as anything was to imply some kind of historical claim to the territory, uh, that this is now like a racial group of people, some nation state. And, that, and that's, that's false historically, it's false biblically. So to say that Jesus is a Palestinian is crazy. He's a Jew. Again, even Israel referred to a landmass, and it wasn't exclusively Jewish people in Jesus' day. It was run by the Romans since about 64 B.C., uh, they are in charge. There's a number of different groups and ethnicities that are referred to in the New Testament that live there. So Israel referred to a land mass that was promised to the Jewish people. But Jesus is a Jew. Uh, he's not a Palestinian. And anyone who would say that has a twisted view of Scripture. They don't even begin to know what the Scripture reveals about the Messiah. Good question. Let's go to the next. All right, 843-525-1859. Again, that is 843-525-1859. If you have a question for Pastor Carl this morning on today's Bible Line, we're going to go to the phone lines, Pastor Carl. I believe we have Karen from Greenville, South Carolina. Good morning, Karen. You are live with Pastor Carl. What is your question? Good morning, uh, Dr. Abrogi. Um, thank you for this opportunity to speak with you. Hey, what a clever way to extend your, your teaching ministry. Um, actually, I just I found out about the Bible Hotline from um, a dear friend of mine that's a member of your church, Suzanne Kennedy. So, Suzanne, if you're listening, um, hey, and um, love you, Suzanne. Uh, I actually mentioned to Suzanne um, a while back that I was doing a deep dive into the study of Revelation, she actually suggested that I download the Search the Scripture app and listen to your teaching on Revelation, which I did. It was very good, and even like took a little um, sidetrack and actually jumped over and listened to your whole series on Daniel. 
as well. It was also very good. So I finished Daniel, finished Revelation. Now I'm just looking at all the scriptures that pertain to the rapture. And so um, my question, actually, is from um, 2 Thessalonians um, chapter 2, verse 1. Actually, that whole Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 raises a lot of questions, but I'll, I'm going to stick to the one question. Um, when in, in quoting, and I'm reading from the um, New American Standard uh, Bible, um, in chapter 2, verse 1, it says, Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him. So my question is about verse 1. Um, I, I guess if you are a pre-trib proponent, then you it's very convenient to interpret that scripture as meaning that two separate events. So the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ being the second coming and our gathering together to him as being the rapture. So it's it being two separate events. However, I was looking at just a variety of different interpretations and translations of that. And so people who don't really support a pre-trib rapture, so that's talking about the one is it's one event. It's just talking about the second coming. Okay. And so I guess, you know, my question is, what is your um what is your opinion? What's your interpretation? Is that talking about one event? Um or is it talking about two separate events? Okay, these you, are these and, are and how do you know for sure? Because yeah, I'm talking no. to people who say, Well that's just talking about one event. Yeah, no. And, but I mm. I see it as talking about two separate events. I mean it, I'm, it is. I believe it is. in a pre trib rapture, so I would support that it's talking about two separate events. So what say you? Okay, good question, Karen from Greenville. Uh, a third uh, series you might consider, you li- you've you listened to Daniel and Revelation, and I always tell people, listen to Daniel first, then Revelation, because Daniel gives you the broad schematic that helps us to understand the 70th week of Daniel's prophecy, which is basically covered in Revelation 4 all the way through 18, what we call the Great Tribulation Period by Jesus' own words, or the time of Jacob's trouble. But there's a third series, it's called God's Prophetic Schedule, and that's also available to search the scriptures. So uh, I hit all the high points, and I have a message just on this that might be helpful to you. But let me read it to you. It says, now we request, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So let's just define some broad terms. When we think, for instance, of the first coming, do we think of a singular event? Well, not really. Uh, we think about his birth in Bethlehem as prophesied by Micah. We think about his being raised in Nazareth as the prophets collectively had predicted. We think about his death, burial, and resurrection in Jerusalem, his ascension. Um, it, there's a whole program of events that are included in the first coming. And so we might call it the first coming program. It would be maybe more accurate to refer to the second coming program because there's a whole series of events that unfold. There is certainly the rapture of the church, which I would argue takes place before the time of Jacob's trouble, before the Great Tribulation. It includes a seven-plus-year period, and I say plus years because uh, really the seven-year time clock doesn't begin until the Antichrist comes on the scene and signs a covenant with Israel. Uh, At the end of the seven years, there's Christ's visible return to the earth. He sets his feet on the Mount of Olives, splits it in two. Uh, The promises made to Israel in the Old Testament that Messiah will come and rule and reign on the earth, which Jesus never denied. He only affirmed. 
Uh, that will unfold for a thousand years. At the end of the thousand years, uh, we'll enter into the eternal state on a new heaven and a new earth. And so none of these things are by accident. These are predicted. They're prophesied. So now with regard, uh, now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus and our gathering together to him. He's speaking here initially of the rapture, of our gathering together. Jesus said, I go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, he's going to come back for us, he says in John 14, and take us to where he is. That's very different from the second coming when Jesus sets his feet on the Mount of Olives, unless you spiritualize that. And that's what the amillennialist does. He just says there's one big event in the future. We all go to heaven. We all enter into the eternal state that are saved and the lost go into hell. Well, that dismisses God's role through the people of Israel, all the promises in the Old Testament, and all these literal prophecies that were have never been fulfilled. And I often ask people who... Uh, come to a different view. How were the prophecies for the first coming fulfilled? Literally, all 300 plus. Dr. Walford counted 333. I know there's over 300 specific prophecies. Every single one was literally fulfilled. For us to expect God to fulfill the prophecies a different way as it relates to the second coming would be foolish. Not to mention when you find Christ interacting with the Old Testament prophets, when you find prophets interacting with prophets, when it came to the prophetic portion of literature, uh, they always literally interpreted future events. And so when we think of the Lord's return, the Mount of Olives have never been split in two. Is that just going to be erased and we all go to heaven? Uh, The river, two rivers actually, that proceed from the Temple Mount, one that goes all the way to the Dead Sea, where men will be able to fish in the Dead Sea. Has that ever been fulfilled? No. Why would we expect for these to be fulfilled in a different way? So I want to say that behind a post-tribulational viewpoint, and and most people don't even hold to a post-tribulational viewpoint. They either hold to a pre-tribulational rapture or they hold to just one big event where Jesus comes back. They would dub it his second coming and we all go to heaven, and again, the lost go to hell. The, behind those viewpoints is a less than literal interpretation of prophecy. So concerning our collection, our gathering together, Paul speaks of it in 1 Thessalonians 4, will not all die, but the Lord's going to come. He'll bring back with him those who've already died. He'll connect their spirits into the body in the grave. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them. We'll meet the Lord in the air. So in the rapture, we meet the Lord in the air. He's taking us back to that place that he promised he would take us to. It's called the Father's house. At the second coming, we come back with him. So in the rapture, we're caught up into heaven. He comes for his saints, but at the second coming, he comes back with his saints. So concerning our gathering together to him, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or or message, or a letter as if from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Now this phrase, the day of the Lord, is a very, very important New Testament phrase, but its origins are found in the Tanakh, in the Old Testament. It doesn't refer to a 24-hour day, but it refers to a long period of time. And so when you're in the Old Testament, you read of the day of the Lord sometimes, and it's wonderful, it's glorious, we want to be there. And then there are other passages that describe 
the great and terrible day of the Lord. It's a time of heartache. It's a time of darkness. It's a time of judgment like the world has never seen. Why? Because the day of the Lord actually mimics a biblical day. A biblical day starts at sundown and it goes through sundown. So when the shadows begin to come in late afternoon, you know that Sabbath is about getting ready to start. And so the day in a Jewish mindset and in God's mindset doesn't start at the Roman time set at 12 a.m. It starts at sundown. And so the day of the Lord mimics a physical day. It gets darker and darker and darker. We're just in the shadows now. The day of the Lord doesn't start until the church is removed, and it gets darker and darker and darker all the way through the seven-year-plus period known as the Great Tribulation. At the second coming, Jesus literally physically comes back to the earth The S-O-N in Malachi is compared to the S-U-N. It's a great, bright, glorious day where Messiah rules and reigns. At the end of the thousand years, it gets dark again. How will it get dark again? Because tribulation saints who enter into the millennial kingdom will be able to procreate and have children, unlike those who are in their resurrected bodies, Old Testament saints who come back with Jesus, church saints that come back with him, will be like the angels in that we neither marry nor are given in marriage. But those who enter the tribulation in their natural bodies will be able to have children. And remember, during that period of time, uh, the scripture teaches that a man's life will be like the life of a tree. If a man lives, Isaiah says, only to be a hundred years old, he's considered cursed. So it will be much like the days before the great flood. And the curse off of the creation will be in some way lifted. And men will live for a potentially a full thousand years. You can have a lot of kids during that time. But even with the Messiah ruling on the earth, he'll have to rule with a rod of iron. Why? Because not everyone will be a believer. Only believers will enter the kingdom of God. But the children of tribulation saints will have to make a decision. And by the way, this is another argument another polemic for a pre-tribulational rapture, because if Christ comes at the end of the seven years and everyone goes up, all the church saints were immediately translated, changed. We have resurrected, glorified bodies. We come back to the earth. Remember, when we see him, we'll be like him. We won't be able to sin. So who are these sinners at the end of the thousand years? So most people Again, they don't even ascribe to a post-tribulational view. They just throw it all out, one big event, because they have to ignore so many passages of Scripture. So he is saying, don't be shaken by some demonic spirit. Remember, there was a time in the early church when the Scripture was not completed, and so God spoke supernaturally. Once the canon of Scripture was closed, God didn't have... Uh, prophets giving new revelation. He didn't have people speaking in tongues and folks translating where you had a supernatural, miraculous language that was translated. And so there were mimics, and that's why First John tells us to test the spirits to see if they be of God. So don't be disturbed by some spirit, some message, a prophetic message, or even a letter. Paul has to deal with a letter that was supposedly from him. And he said, remember, every time I write a letter, here's my distinguishing mark as he reminds the Galatians that this day had come, this day of the Lord. So the day of the Lord is not a 24-hour day. It's a thousand plus years long. And um, how do we know it hasn't come? Let no one deceive you. Uh, For 
And if you have the NASB, it will not come is in italics, meaning that's not a part of the original Greek text, but it's implied, and indeed it is. Uh, the sentence wouldn't read smoothly in English or even make sense to some degree, but literally it reads, let no one in any way deceive you for, unless the apostasy comes first, the it though is helpful, it will not come because it causes you to think, what is it referring back to? And the nearest antecedent in the Greek New Testament, and even with these italics added, goes back to the day of the Lord. Let no one deceive you in any way, for the day of the Lord will not come unless the apostasy comes first, the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship. See, they were a little bit confused. They were shaken. There was some demonic spirit that spoke like he had the authority of God. There was someone who had, quote-unquote, a word of prophecy, but it wasn't from the Lord. There was even potentially a letter that was written, but it wasn't from Paul. And they're confused. And, of course, he reminds them in the uh, opening chapter of this book that when the Lord Jesus comes, he'll deal out retribution to those who don't know God, to those who don't obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, and these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction. And so he's reminding them a day of judgment is coming that God will afflict people. And so some of them thought, well, we're in that time leading up to the second coming. Maybe we misunderstood Paul on the rapture. And uh, we're in the day of the Lord. Paul says, you can't be in the day of the Lord. How do you know you can't be in the day of the Lord? Because two critical events must take place. One, the apostasy and the man of lawlessness must be revealed. Who's the man of lawlessness? He's called the Antichrist. He's given some 30 plus titles in the Bible. So the Antichrist is not on the scene. He won't be revealed until after the gathering together. Excuse me. So if someone tells you they know who the Antichrist is, they're grossly deceived and misinformed, and they've spoken out of turn because the Antichrist will not be revealed until our gathering together. So after the church is removed, there's got to be chaos across the world. I mean, think about millions of Christians gone, uh, planes that were being flown by a believer crashed, cars crashed, all kinds of medical operations ceased. I mean, there will be total chaos. People will look for an answer, and it will be a perfect climate for the Antichrist to step on the scene. And so, one, he's not on the scene, neither has the apostasy taken place. Now, the Bible speaks of end times apostasy, and it speaks of apostasy that's always been in the church since the ascension of Christ. Jesus reminded us, just as there's a good sower of seed, Satan goes out and he sows his false seed. So there's always been apostasy, though it will grow towards the end. But he's not talking about just any old kind of apostasy. It's articular here. The apostasy, the apostasy of apostasies. When the man of lawlessness, the Antichrist, comes along the scene, he's going to come with great signs, wonders, and miracles, Paul says, and he's going to convince a lot of people. He'll oppose and exalt himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Don't you remember that while I was with you, I was telling you these things? This is a new church at Thessalonica. I taught you while I was there. And remember, Paul was only there uh, three Sabbaths, so potentially just under a month. And, and yet, 
prophecy was an important enough subject to him that he covered these issues. That's something that's missing in the church today. And you know that restrains him now so that in his time he'll be revealed. So there's a restrainer. Who's the restrainer? It's the Holy Spirit. And he's restraining sin through the church. But when the church is removed, then that lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth. The lawless one, as Revelation teaches, is slain at the second coming. Jesus comes back to the earth with the breath of his mouth. He is cast into the lake of fire. And this lawless one, this Antichrist, his coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all kinds of power and signs and false wonders, with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish. So he's going to be convincing. This is going to create the apostasy. He's going to claim to be God. I'm the Messiah. This is the one that people have been waiting for. I am he. And of course, the Jews will initially be attracted to this. They'll be deceived initially, but there'll be an event that will take place in the middle of the tribulation that will convince them it's impossible. And so he says, for this reason, because they did not receive the love of the truth to be saved, God will send upon them a deluding influence that they might believe what is false. And so people who've heard the gospel in power and clarity prior to the rapture of the church who did not respond will believe what is false. They will believe a lie. That's the apostasy of apostasies. So when we speak of the second coming program, we're speaking of a whole series of events. Um, and included in the second coming program is the catching up of the church. And so the Bible in many passages speaks of an imminent return that nothing needs to be fulfilled for him to come for the church. The second coming is a prophetically driven event, a date in which no one knows the day or the hour. Uh, there's a time frame immediately after the seven-year period is over. We don't know if it's three days or 30 days. And you read the end of Daniel, if you remember listening through that series. Uh, we don't know the exact number of days, but no one will be able to point to the day or the hour for the second coming. Nonetheless, the rapture could happen today. But when you see prophecy being fulfilled for the second coming, you know that the rapture that precedes it is that much closer. When you see at this time of year all the Christmas decorations up in Walmart, you know that Thanksgiving is near. Why? Because Thanksgiving precedes Christmas. And when you see God doing the final things necessary, he certainly could have pulled it off at 500 AD or 1000 AD, then brought back all the Jews and then started the seven-year clock when they signed a covenant, but he didn't. He waited 1,900 years to gather the Jews from across the planet. As Isaiah the prophet said, he made them in a nation in a single day. And they've gone from 20,000 Jews to 7.3 million Jews. And we're seeing all the things being set up for this coming man of sin. And among those, even in this recent conflict in America, like we've never seen before in American history, all this growing hatred towards the Jewish people. That's a prophecy. Why? Because all the nations of the world are ultimately going to oppose Israel. That's Zechariah 12. That's Zechariah 14. But again, the stage is being set, which reminds us the rapture is that much closer. That's a long answer, but it's an important question. Let's go to the next. All right, Pastor Carl, 843-525-1859. Again, that is 843-525-1859. Our next question, Pastor Carl, comes from David 
Uh, he is a avid listener of Search the Scriptures um, from the country of Cuba. He says that he has been listening to your sermons on Malachi, specifically about divorce. He also has friends and family who profess to be Christians, but he needs some help in guiding them in their different directions. Well, um, a couple of things. One I dealt with, and I'm preaching the book of Malachi to first-time listeners here, and that's available at communitybiblechurch.us. And by the way, you should follow us on Twitter. What are, or, or XI, what? What are, what are our Twitter uh, handles? It's uh, searchthescriptures.org, Pastor Carl. It's at, at X. X is what they're yeah. calling it now. So, it's so at if you X. type in search the scriptures, yep. you'll find us. And you'll find us also under CJ Brogy. Correct. And um, uh, follow us on Twitter. If you're not a follower, I'm putting up all kinds of clips now daily that um, will be helpful to people. And you'll know what's happening locally. And many times, search the scriptures, people are listening in different parts of the world, and you you might be hearing a series I did 10 years ago. Um, but when you follow us on Twitter, you're getting the up-to-date stuff and say, I want to hear that message, and you'll be able to to find it without too much difficulty. So in Malachi 2.16, for I, the God of Israel, hate divorce, underscore, he doesn't hate divorced people. He hates divorce. He didn't hate the woman at the well. She'd been married five times, and the woman she was married to at the current state was not you know, the, mar- the man he was, she was with at the current state she wasn't even married to. She had a track record of immorality. Could she be forgiven? Yes. Can people who have been divorced and remarried be forgiven? Of course. There's all manner of sin can be forgiven men, as Jesus states in Mark's gospel. All manner. Any kind of sin can be forgiven man. The only kind of sin that can't be forgiven according to Scripture is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit because that's an eternal sin, an unforgivable sin that in this day would be expressed by someone repeatedly uh, rejecting the convicting ministry of the Holy Spirit, saying what he is speaking to them about from Scripture is a lie, and ultimately you call him the liar of liars, and God says, okay, You can have your will, and you will commit an eternal sin. Now, if you're concerned whether or not you've ever committed that, I promise you you haven't, because people who have committed it have no such concern. But Jesus is clear. If a man divorces his wife and marries another, he commits adultery. He said if you marry someone who—and you've never been married, but you marry someone who's been divorced, you commit adultery. That's what he said. Why? Because he makes it clear in Matthew 19— And in Mark 10, the only legitimate way to break the marriage covenant is by death. It's the only way you can break it. When Paul illustrates this truth in Romans 7, he's speaking about the law because he wants us to understand our relationship to the Old Testament law. But what he makes so clear is he uses an illustration about marriage. Now, the illustration is not wrought with error. Every illustration, whether given by Paul or Peter or Jesus or any writer of Scripture— only uses truth to teach truth. The spirit of truth inspires truth to teach truth. So he says, for the married woman, Romans 7, 2, is bound by law to her husband while he is living. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning the husband. So then, if while her husband is living, she is joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law so that she is not an adulteress, though she is joined or married to another man. In other words, he's saying if while your husband is living and you're married to another man, you're an adulteress. Why? You're in violation of what Jesus said. 
But if your husband dies and you're joined or married to another man, you're not an adulteress. Why? Because marriage breaks, I mean, death breaks the marriage bond. Now, Paul gives the same counsel in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, where he deals with various issues of singleness and married and but to the married, I give instructions, not I, but the Lord. That's in deference to what he'll say in verse 12. To the rest, I say, not the Lord. In other words, on one situation, he's saying this is an issue Jesus didn't address, but I'm going to speak with the same authority because I'm his apostle. On the first issue, he's going to say, what I'm about to tell you is not something that God showed me that Jesus never spoke on, but this is a subject he addressed. To the married, I give instructions, not I, but the Lord. Where did Jesus give this instruction? When he spoke about the subject of divorce and remarriage. And so, for instance, again, I've already referenced a couple verses, but if you uh, looked at Luke 16 and verse 18, everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries one who is divorced from a husband commits adultery. Or in Mark 10, uh, where again, the Pharisees question him on uh, whose side are you on? Are you in the school of Shabbat or the school of Hillel concerning divorce and remarriage? And when is divorce legitimate? And he takes them all the way back to the scripture that what God has joined, no man has authority to uh, separate. And then when the disciples question him, he says, whoever divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she herself divorces her husband, and marries another man, she is committing adultery. That's what he said. And that's why Paul will say, this is what Jesus said. And so here's the application. He doesn't quote what Jesus said. He's just taking the truth of what he said, that he himself echoed in Romans 7, that the wife should not leave her husband. But if she does leave, why would she leave? Look, there are some situations that are untenable. Um, A wife is being beaten up black and blue. Um, a man is committing serial adultery with other women and he wants to sleep with his wife and she wants that kind of disease, potentially some uncurable disease. No. So she leaves. Uh, now a lot of people say, well, I, I'm leaving today for, you know, this kind of a, you know, he yells at me too much, emotional abuse. And look, there's a line there somewhere on abuse. Certainly your body's a temple of the Holy Spirit and you don't want your body to be harmed. You don't want your children to be harmed. But there is, uh, as 1 Peter 3, 1 through 7 teaches, unjust suffering. And it might be, you know, a husband who yells and mistreats you and doesn't respect you. And Peter says, you know, don't dump him, win him without a word by your changed life and your respectful behavior. But there are times when a woman must leave. If she does leave, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband, if the shoe's on the other foot, should not divorce his wife. So you can remain unmarried or you can go back. Those are your options. Why? Because that's what Jesus taught. That's how tight the marriage relationship is. What if I failed? You can't unscramble eggs. Um, You receive God's forgiveness, but neither do you rationalize the sin that you've committed. If you've been forgiven for an abortion, you don't say, well, God can forgive all manner of sin, and now I'm pregnant again, and I don't want to be, and I guess I'll go get an abortion. No, that's presuming on the grace of God. So you don't lower God's standard. You, you lower God's standards. Look, Jesus warned someone who teaches people to break the least of these 
commandments will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. So where do we get this view today that adultery after marriage cancels out the relationship? It's a misapplication of the betrothal view. Jesus says in Matthew 19 that I say to you, and here's where the exception comes. It's not found in Luke or Mark because Gentiles didn't practice betrothal. When you're betrothed, you're considered husband and wife. Joseph is called the husband of Mary and never had a physical relationship with her. And so he gives an exception in Matthew 19 because only Jews practice betrothal. So if during the betrothal period, your wife had been unfaithful, and that's what he assumes Mary had been. No one had seen a, a, a conception without a man before in all of human history. So he assumes she's unfaithful. He's going to put her away. He's going to divorce her. Why? Because he's a righteous man. He wants to obey the law. And God's angel comes and says, no, this is a miracle conception. So he said, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for porneia and marries another woman commits moikeia. Porneia is fornication. You could translate it sexual immorality. It's not the same word. He doesn't say, I say to you, ever divorces his wife except for adultery and marries another commits adultery. No, he uses two distinct Greek words, just like in uh, Matthew 15, a few chapters earlier, for out of the heart of man comes evil thoughts, murderers, adulteries, it's the word morkeia, fornications, it's the word porneia, thefts. He has two thoughts in mind. He doesn't, he's not repeating himself. He's using two distinct words because there are two different kinds of sin. They say of Jesus in John 8, we weren't born of porneia. 30 years later, that rumor that Mary had an illegitimate relationship with another man while betrothed to Joseph is still being dragged around. And they're saying, you, you were born of porneia. You were born because your mother was unfaithful to Joseph. And of course, that was not true. And so the exception clause applies to Jews if during the betrothal period one had been unfaithful. Who unraveled that? Erasmus. He was an unbeliever who fought Martin Luther, a Roman Catholic unbeliever, on the issue of justification by grace alone through faith alone. He came up with the view that adultery after marriage dissolved the marriage bond and gave the innocent party only freedom to remarry. And even if people followed that, probably 90% of second marriages would never happen. I say all that to say that we hold up God's standard and we hold up God's grace. People need forgiveness. And if you reach people with the gospel, uh, you will have more and more people in your church who are in your second or third marriages. You have to help them to realize God's standard. You also have to help them to realize God's truth so that they don't use their bad example as a motivation for someone else to bail out thinking maybe the second time around will be better. Good question. Let's go to the next. All right, 843-525-1859. Again, that's 843-525-1859 if you have a question for Pastor Carl this morning. Our next question comes from Alberto out of Savannah, Georgia. He is live with us. Good morning, Alberto. You are live with Pastor Carl. What is your question? Daddy, oh, man. Daddy, oh, man. Where's my mouth back out? Alberto? Alberto, go ahead. Start your question over, Alberto. We're having a little difficulty hearing you. Start over again. Go ahead. Hello. Alberto is gone. Let's go to the next. Go ahead, Alberto. Turn off your radio. Ask your question. It's not. not, I can barely hear you. Anyway, my question is, 
Um, I heard him talk about Dr. Michael Brown. He was saying that if a, if a person goes back into the world or for a season or whatever for a while, if a person died in an unrepentant or unconfessing, that he would lose his salvation. But I thought the Bible teaches that once Christ died for our past and present and future sins, and we'll see unto the day of redemption, so can an unconf- unconfessing or unrepentant sin undo salvation for a believer? And also, he teaches that the perseverance of the saint is a Calvinist doctrine. But even those I heard some Pentecostal believe in perseverance of the saints. So, what do you think about all this? Well, also, Ephemus, it's, some yeah. people use Ephemus also as, as an example that, you know, Apostle Paul said that he went love this present world. So, also, he departed from the faith, but the Bible never mentions he departed from the faith. Yeah, good question. Good question. Let me see if I can answer it. So, Michael Brown, he's a good guy. I'm glad he knows Christ as his personal Savior. He has a lot of erroneous teachings. Nonetheless, um, his teaching that you can lose your salvation, I've never heard before that he has actually spoken to that issue and he taught that. So I don't want to falsely assume. Now, there are other doctrinal issues. Michael Bryan and I and many of the teachers on this uh, radio station would take issue with him on. Nonetheless, if he indeed teaches that one can lose salvation— then he would be wrong. I've never heard him say that. I think if I understand him correctly, he is dealing with people who say they are believers, who depart from the faith, and his point would be that they were not believers. But let's assume that what you're saying is true. What does the Bible teach? It does teach the perseverance of the saints, and it depends what you mean when you say a Calvinistic doctrine. There's no such thing as a Calvinistic doctrine. It's a biblical doctrine. Jesus taught the doctrine of perseverance, as did the whole New Testament, that if you truly have met the Lord, you will persevere. He says, for instance, in 1 John chapter 2, he says, children, it's the last hour. And so in the New Testament, we've been in the last hour since the uh, day of Pentecost, since the ascension of Christ into heaven. That was the kickoff of the last days. And so the New Testament refers to the imminent return. Now, I think we're probably in the last five minutes of the last hour. Uh, Maybe we're in the last minute of the last hour. We're approaching the last of the last days, but we've been in the last days since since uh, Pentecost, since the Ascension, children, it's the last hour. And just as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. So there's coming this one man, the Antichrist, but there's always been Antichrist, those who come in the place of Jesus with false doctrine, who uh, have always been prevalent throughout the history of the church. They went out from us, these false teachers, but they were not really of us. What does he mean they were not really of us? They weren't real believers. They came in waving the born-again flag, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. We call that perseverance. That's what Jesus taught. That's what the epistles teach, that when you're saved, you don't renounce Christ. Now, are there people who come and say they're saved? Yeah, Jesus said some people receive the word with joy. They believe for a while, and there it's a reference to only intellectual head faith, but it's never reached the human heart. They believe for a while, but in time of testing or sin or temptation, what do they do? They bail out. 
This is what Jesus speaks of during the seven-year period. Uh, remember, during the time of the Great Tribulation, we just spoke of the apostasy, the falling away of all falling aways. The word apostasy, it means to fall away. We've always had apostasy, but there's coming the apostasy. And because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. Jesus is teaching perseverance. That during the tribulation period, the true saint of God will not take the mark of the beast in order to be able to feed his family. He'll persevere to the end. And what will that mean for most who persevere? They lose their heads, literally. They are beheaded. If they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it might be shown that they all are not of us. Dying with some unconfessed sin in your soul, that's good Roman Catholicism. And that's why they have in their sacramental system what's called last rites, so that you don't die with some mortal sin on your soul. And they even classify and break sin down into venial sin and mortal sin. Listen, the scripture is clear that Christians sin. If a Christian uh, dies with some unconfessed sin on his soul, he may be out of fellowship with the Lord, but he's not out of relationship with the Lord. The relationship that God establishes with his people is eternal. It's unbroken. You can never sever eternal life. It's a permanent thing, whereas your fellowship with God is a moment-by-moment kind of thing, and it's broken when we sin. And so God gives uh, exhortation to believers who have entered into an eternal relationship to walk in the light as he is in the light. Why? That we might have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus might cleanse us from all sin. And so that's an an important truth. But understand, Jesus is clear that once we are saved, we are saved forever, that we can never sever an eternal relationship with the living God. And he couldn't have made that clearer. And if you have questions on that, Alberto, you seem to have a lot of questions that most of the questions you answer, and I'm glad you call, but most of the questions you ask are answered if you would go to search the scriptures and listen to the basic discipleship course. What we call basic discipleship is our 45-week class that we offer every Sunday morning at Community Bible Church. And the first five weeks concern the eternal security of the believer. And so I deal with passages that show how God the Father has secured us, how God the Son has secured us, how God the Holy Spirit has secured us, and I deal with the passages that people typically use to say you can lose your salvation. Those five lessons, a singular handout, would be very useful to you. Let's go to the next question. All right, Pastor Carl, 843-525-1859. If you have a question for Pastor Carl this morning. We're going to go to the phone lines, Pastor Carl. I believe we have Bob from Okatee, South Carolina. Good morning, Bob. You are live with Pastor Carl. Uh, good morning, Walter, Pastor Ruge. I, I have a question, a little frustration. I go to a, a few men's fellowship groups, and, and the word prophetic and prophecy gets sewn around kind of loosely, I would say. Uh, I have people that are friends that will that will tell about theories they listen to on, on various devices on their computer. Uh, social media about the the, the coming of uh, the the president of the United States will be re, will be replaced before the next election. About what's going to happen to the global world situation, one world uh, government, uh, what's going to happen to our currency, everything everything imaginable. I say, where are you getting that? And they say, well, it's prophetic. Don't you read Acts like Acts two seventeen? 
uh, in the, the in the last days, sons and daughter will prophesy, and so on and so forth. And, and I'm saying that's this, this this isn't the last days. This is the day of the Lord. Uh, to me, prophecy and prophetic comes from God. If I'm wrong, I would like to know. And I I know you could clear it up. But I, that's what I'm that's what I'm wanting to hear. Well, it's a good question. And just to be real specific, to define terms not loosely, the day of the Lord, as I just covered. Uh, from a caller in Greenville, South Carolina, it does not begin until the church is removed. The day of the Lord cannot begin, he said, until the Antichrist is revealed and the great apostasy takes place. And so that doesn't happen until our gathering together with the Lord. And the day of the Lord, again, it includes the seven-year period known as the Great Tribulation period, includes the thousand-year reign of Christ, and it, it's concluded with the final rebellion when Satan, after he's been bound for a thousand years, is loosed. With all that said, we are in the last days. We've been in the last days, according to the a sermon you've just quoted, since uh, the day of Pentecost. At least Peter understood we're in the last days. We're really, the last days technically began, if we want to be really um, pinpointed with the coming of the Lord. Uh, Jesus to the earth, because in the book of Hebrews, in the opening chapter, uh, he reminds us that uh, God spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways. In these last days, he has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things. And so with the coming of the Lord Jesus, we entered the last days, that time frame, you could say it began, I suppose, on the day of Pentecost with absolute authority, but Christ ushered in the last days. And so when Peter gives that great sermon and uh, 120 people, if you remember, spilled out of the upper room, they were Galileans, yet they spoke in 15 different languages and not only languages, but dialects within the language. And it was a miracle. Uh, I speak English, but if I could speak Chinese and not just Chinese, but fluent fluent Mandarin Chinese, that would be a miracle. Uh, That's what took place on Pentecost, not the gibberish we hear today. That's no miracle, no different from what Hindus do in a number of cults. But when he stood up uh, and these mockers came along and said, well, these folks are drunk. That's why they're doing this. Drunk, it's only 9 a.m. in the morning. This is not what drunk men do. Well, what does it mean? And so he raises his voice in Acts 2.14. He speaks with authority. Men of Judea and all you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. These men are not drunk, as you suppose, for it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. And it shall be in the last days that I will pour forth of my spirit on all mankind. And so that's what was happening on the day of Pentecost. The promise of the spirit was being fulfilled. And uh, these, uh, this new covenant that Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36 had prophesied that Jesus spoke of in the upper room, this is the blood of the new covenant, uh, where he that night spoke of the fact that he would not leave them as orphans, but send them the Holy Spirit This is the last days. And so today, unlike Old Testament saints, when we call upon the name of Jesus, we are indwelt by God, the Holy Spirit. Now, your other question, certainly people go bananas with prophecy 
Bible prophecy, there's all kinds in manner of prophecy, some that was short-term, which was actually a proof and evidence according to Deuteronomy 18.18 that a man was indeed a true prophet. He had to say more than, well, let me tell you that will happen, you know, a thousand years from now. Well, that's interesting, but I'm not going to be around in a thousand years to see whether or not you're, you're a legitimate prophet. And so Moses reminded them, that there would need to be short-range prophecies. And those were the characteristics of true prophets. And of course, even in the early church, there were people who spoke new revelation because the canon of Scripture was not completed. Now we have a measuring stick. It's completed. And so you have all these people going around today speaking of end times prophecy, and they say, God told me. Well, if he didn't show you from the Bible, then that was not God speaking to you. That was an uh, that was your inflated ego or maybe even the devil trying to convince you. But are there legitimacies to some of the things that you said? Certainly. We do know that there is coming a preset uh, that will ultimately lead to the great reset. The scripture speaks of the fact that uh, there will be a one world religion. Are there presets unfolding today? Certainly there are. You know, you have the Pope of Rome who keeps having these meetings legitimizing all the religions of the world. Uh, That's a preset for the coming reset because there will be initially uh, all these religions of the world that will come together in the middle of the seven-year period. The other religions won't be accepted. Only the religion of Antichrist will be approved, and you'll have to take a mark that will show that you approve him, uh, the great 666 number. But there are presets that are happening. Will there be a one-world economy? Yes, the Bible speaks of an economic reset. Could digital money lead to that? Certainly, you could see it. Uh, In China and in three major cities, all with a population of over 30 million people, uh, the currency there is no longer any good. You have to buy things digitally. Our own president uh, signed an executive order for a study on this very issue. What will it mean? It will mean that there'll come a time, possibly, we don't know it. We don't know if it will happen after the rapture, before the rapture. We don't know how far down the road we'll go before the Lord catches us up. But you could see, certainly, if you had digital money and digital control. One, it would help to solve the huge economic problem we have as we're going to be approaching, we're over 32 trillion. They say by the time this president leaves office, we'll be at $36 trillion. So if you can tax every single dime of buying and selling, then you could raise a lot of tax revenue. So there's a lot of issues that will take place. And uh, and again, Uh, People go wild and they say, well, this is what's going to happen. This may happen. We know there will be a one-world economy. We don't know how it will unfold. Could it be that digital money will be the one way in which the Antichrist can maintain that control? Certainly would make a lot of sense. But again, we can't speak beyond what the Scripture says. Well, we're out of time. Thanks for joining us today for the Bible line. God bless you as you walk with Jesus Christ. Mm 